Shameless Picture Show podcast listeners. This is one of your co-hosts, Nick Richards, with some news. Might be good, might be bad, depending on how much you like my half of the conversation. Um, things have gotten a little crazy for me recently, and I've had to reprioritize how I spend my time. And unfortunately, as much as I absolutely love doing this show, um, the the shameless is one of the things that I have to step down from for the time being. Um, I hope to return someday, and in the meantime, I am entrusting full reign of the podcast in Michael's very, very capable hands. Um, so I will be joining all of you now as listeners and fans as Michael continues to explore his and his other co-hosts' shamelists. Um, it has been a real pleasure for me, and as much as I need to do this, it is truly heartbreaking, and I am going to miss it. I love you all. Keep listening. Keep checking things off of your own shame lists, because that's how we grow as viewers. Maybe that's a little too dramatic. <laughs> Just a little bit too dramatic. Um, but but really, I'm going to miss this, and uh, I hope you keep listening, keep enjoying, and uh, hopefully you'll hear from me again in the future. Signing off. person when it first when they first had like the the sort of i don't know if you want to call it the the hd wars with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. between blu-ray and then yeah i didn't jump on until after that because i wanted to see who was gonna win yeah and then i even i took a little while after that too partially because you know i was in college i'm like oh it's cheaper dvds are cheaper mm-hmm. but then the other part too was some of the the first blu-rays i don't feel like were they're either they weren't good or I wasn't used to them looking so sharp that yeah. it, it didn't feel right. And not to pat my not to pat my own back, but me setting your TV also helped with that some of that too. Yeah, that's true. Because like a lot of times when you buy a new TV, it, they're like they're super like they're over sharp and over bright, and um, heck, sometimes it's like even this the jump to like HD. Like first, like my mom when I first, when she first got an HD TV and she turned on like Turner Classic Movies and she's like, "Why doesn't it fill the screen?" 
It's a wider screen. Yeah. And this movie is not meant to be so wide. I felt like such a silly person when, you know, now looking back at it too, because in high school, I was the person who bought all, oh, I bought my movies on uh, full screen because we had a full screen TV. Well, you had a full screen TV. You're playing to your strengths. Right. I'm like, why would I get widescreen? No one needs that. Well, the worst bars. ones, if you get <laughs> some old DVDs, some of the widescreen DVDs are widescreen, but still in 4.3. Jeez. So it's like you still got the black bars on the sides and then on the top. So it's like you have an even small, like, what am I looking at? That's awesome. I've, um, it's the big reason I, I rebought the doors because my DVD copy was like that. And I was like, I can't watch this. And then you could, you could zoom in, but then everything looks garbagey anyways. And I was like, and I'm used to garbagey pictures. I like V I watch VHS tapes, but like I go into that intentionally for the aesthetic you put in a movie cause you legitimately want to watch and you can't stand to look at it. It's kind of heartbreaking a little bit. Speaking of The Doors, I guess, and speaking of this podcast, mm -hmm. that movie, I guess, is technically on my shame list. You've never seen The Doors? Never seen The Doors. I've only seen a few Oliver Stone films in general. As a whole, I tend to like Oliver Stone's biopics more than his other films. It's not to, not to say I, I, you know, I like every biopic and I dislike every other non-biopic, but as a whole, I seem to enjoy those more. And Oliver Stone gets is it gets a bad rap for a lot of valid reasons. Yeah. Um, but one thing I will, I will never say is he's, I will, I'll never say he's a bad filmmaker. Um, he's a filmmaker that I don't necessarily always agree with the politics in his films. But it's weird that he was at a strange period of time where he was adding like real art house sensibilities into big budget movies. Yep. Like there's some scenes in the doors where you watch or like say like natural born killers. Like there's some really artsy highbrow shit happening in those movies. And you're like, wait, how did this get onto big screens and seen by the masses? Well, even like uh, Wall Street has got style to it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a filmmaker who's got style. Yeah. And that's. In many ways, that's in, well. I go back and forth whether style is important because I'm a big fan of uh, like Clint Eastwood. I love a lot of his films, but to me, he's a filmmaker who doesn't have a style. Yeah, he's kind of like well, his if you look at his idols, like someone like Don Siegel who directed Dirty Harry, his style was not having a style. Yeah, he is adaptable. Yeah, I like when filmmakers are able to do that, but. You know, then again, it is nice to throw in someone like Stone or throw in someone like Scorsese and you just, you know who who made the film based on what, you know, just looking at it. And Scorsese is an interesting choice because he he's, he's a filmmaker, he's a chameleon where he can have his, you know, he's got a Scorsese style, you know, very influenced off the French New Wave and just... You know, where he wants you to see his style, things like Casino and Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. But then he's another filmmaker who can be just as subtle and make a movie that its style is not noticing. And, Cape Fear. Mm hmm And then like the well, the topic of our of our episode, Steven Spielberg, he's kind of in a weird in between where he's a man that he's a filmmaker who you don't realize how much style he has until you start seeing it. Yeah, I think he's like the ultimate chameleon. Yeah. Because, like, you look at it, and it's like, when I first started getting into St Spielberg's films, and I was, like, like, early on in film school before I really understood style and what went into it, and I was like, oh, Spielberg, as much as I like his films, he doesn't have a style, he doesn't have a look. 
but now it's like he's got such a very obvious style mm-hmm. that I can even if like I I can just see a scene of something and say nothing like iconic like Indiana Jones or whatever. But if I see a movie of his that I say I didn't realize he directed right away, I can I can probably instantly tell you it's him just by the way he moves the camera. Yeah, well, and you do, everyone talks about the the Spielberg Warner mm-hmm. now. It's sort of like become this big thing that. He's now known for, even though he's been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think every frame of painting for that big yeah. part of it, because they made it very, they they put it in, you know, put it in the lexicon of cinephiles. Absolutely. But what, I think what's interesting about his oneers, and and it now makes sense. You know, you had introduced me to the Spielberg documentary uh, that's on HBO, but his oneers more than anything are economical. Mm-hmm. Which makes complete sense when you realize that he came up through TV. Yeah. Where everything has to be shot relatively quickly. But he was also someone that when he was in TV, he wanted he still wanted to be noticed. Mm-hmm. So he'd have little visual flares and, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he, he, was, he was the guy that was like, oh, you're the guy that likes lenses and dolly tracks. and. Yeah. But no, it, it makes sense. And before I actually introduce the episode proper, like one thing I, I, I find fascinating about his his Warner is it's not like, you know, everyone cites that that Warner at the beginning Goodfellas where they're going through the kitchen and through the through the restaurant. You know, the scene I'm talking about. Yep. Everyone cites that as being like, oh, that's, you know, like when we're in film school, the, our, our buddies who wanted to be cinematographers, that was the one that got them off. But it's like what it's it's style for the sake of style. Whereas a Spielberg Warner, it's like, how much information can I convey yep. in this? Can I, it's the same thing of like when Brian De Palma does a Warner. It's because Brian De Palma comes from the school thought of the more I have to cut, the more amateur I look. It's like if I can't tell everything, almost everything important in this scene in the establishing shot, my establishing shot's not good enough. Nice. And then he cuts in for emotional purposes and that's kind of and just spielberg does the same thing he just moves his camera yeah where you know so de palma likes at warner were a little more of a static warner where his framing is the more interesting aspect of it or spielberg is like i'll move the camera as much as i need to to get information in when you're shooting that did you do you cover the whole thing in the in the wide and cover no no no. i'm saying just shoot, <laughs> did you shoot the whole scene in the wide and then do her close-up or do you know that you're going to go right on that cut so you just cut the scene and you go in and just do what you know you're going to use well in many instances you set up you know the wide shot to see what the actors are doing it's a two character scene and when you do character scenes you want to let the actors dominate the stage so you try to and you watch what they do you know, much like a location, you see what they're doing, and then you figure out where to put the camera in order to maximize the effect of what they're doing. And then as you go through the scene and you watch in the master shot, you, saw, you see them doing things that you say, well, maybe I should go in closer for that. And that, when Nancy did that, I'd probably say, I should, you know, this is a good time to cut into her face. Yeah, I and mean, that's kind of how I shoot everything, <laughs> um, seeing as I have no action shots. But the the yeah, but you look at the scene. Yeah, you let you the watch actors. the actors. They do things, you know. I think because you're you you do so many kind of in some cases epic camera work, and you and and you have, I mean, 
it's kind of even iconic the way you, you know, certain shots that you tend to to use and in, in sequences in your movies. But I, I struck in, in Blowout, there's a lot of just great two shots with just the actors in right, the room. absolutely. You know, with John and Nancy in the... In, uh, there are places for those two shots. You just have yeah. to figure out what they're doing and where it fits into the scenario. Right, and there are not a lot of close-ups. I mean, it's like you use... No. It's a, the whole thing of using the close-up when it really counts. Well, in Casualties of War, I think I have one big close-up is when, you know, Michael Fox is, you know, you know, witnessing the rape scene. It's the right. only close-up in the movie. You know, so if you look at older movies, you'll realize, my God, they're photographing their whole bodies. They're letting them use their hands and walk around. And instead of this television thing where everybody, we were watching that movie the other day. What was that movie we were watching the other day? It was like one close-up oh, after awful. another. It was relentless. Awful. And it was like tighter and tighter. Yeah. Three people talking at a table. Bam, 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 bam. It's like, give me a break. I mean, the close-up is a great thing to use, but it, you know, it's like banging a drum over and over and over again. Uh, in the movie we're going to be talking about today, there is a kind of a Spielberg wonder, but it is the most Scorsese Spielberg wonder that he has. Well, I'm going to introduce the show, of course. and then we can talk about it. So, as is the custom on this show, I take a sip of my coffee. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and with me, for the first time ever, is a very special guest host. My wrestle buddy, movie friend, best man, and best friend, the golden lover, Kyle Arpke. <laughs> I went with the golden lover because I was just watching a, uh, a story arc retrospective on Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi. And their their tag team name was the Golden Lovers. Yeah. So I thought I think it's a deep poll, but I figure Kyle might enjoy that. <laughs> I love it. That's pretty. That's pretty great. Um, me and you have been friends since film school. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say like the, near the middle of film school is when we became friends, and we bonded over the fact that we both love professional wrestling. I think CM Punk is what kind of sparked yep. this friendship, and the fact that while we both definitely have our own pretentious tastes. Like yeah. you can't have gone through four, four to five years of film school and not have <laughs> at least some pretentious taste. But a big thing that bonded us together was we both like big budget movies mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah, we we can be hard on them, but like sometimes, sometimes you just don't want to watch Breathless. You want to just put put something fun and yeah, and we find the art in those big budget films. Yeah, I think uh, sort of. I've been trying I've been thinking about like what is what draws me to films and I think it's films that you can tell that they tried whether they they tried to do something different or they tried to draw you into a story that is otherwise very um I I don't necessarily want to say mundane but is generic mm -hmm. you know you think about a lot of like action or the big blockbuster yep. movies and there's a lot of very generic plots but if 
the filmmaking behind it can get you to forget about that, to either enjoy yourself or to feel the emotional pull of the characters, whether, you know, through cinematography, just through good editing, sound, music, uh, acting, all that stuff, then I can be invested in it. If it's a movie that is generic, like has a generic story and is shot generically, then I sort of go, oh, I'm not a big fan of this. Yeah. And like, I feel like there's, there's definitely an even ground between them where you can have something that satisfies both sides of your brain, the entertainment side and the high art side. And actually, uh, speaking of Steven Spielberg, there's a, uh, right before he made Jaws, they asked him the question. I was like, we know you can make films, but can you make a movie? And our, our topic for today, I think, uh, is when he really started flexing, you know, showing that he can find both. Um, I guess we should stop burying the weed. On today's episode, <laughs> we'll be discussing Steven Spielberg's fe- first feature film, the made-for-TV movie, Duel. Produced in 1971 for ABC's Movie of the Week, Duel tells the harrowing tale of a drive through the desert gone awry. David Mann is a middle-aged, meek salesman on his way to handle some business. His leisure drive becomes stressful once he finds himself behind a larger tanker truck. Not wanting to be late, Mann passes the truck and thus begins a cat-and-mouse tale that pits Mann versus machine. Pun intended. It begins harmless with Mann and the truck casually and not so casually passing each other, but as Mann's stress rises, so do the stakes. The truck is obviously not going to let these indiscretions go, and the film becomes a high-speed thriller about one person's will to survive a truck that wants him off the road. The film was written by Richard Matheson, based on his story by the same name, which, funny enough, was actually originally published in Playboy magazine. The film was thrilling and was considered one of the best TV movies ever made and helped put Spielberg on the map as a film director. The film was photographed by Jack A. Marta, who's primarily a television cinematographer, but really shows his his eye for, for cinematic visuals, scored by Billy Goldenberg and stars Dennis Weaver as David Mann, with supporting cast of features Jacqueline Scott, Eddie Firestone, and Lucille Benson. Firestone is the Harry Fonda lookalike. Uh, Eddie Firestone was remember like when he first gets to the diner yep. and he crashes his car into that, and the guy's like, "Are you okay?" Gotcha. That's Eddie okay. Firestone. He he is a he is a a big time character actor from a lot of westerns and everything. Um, Jacqueline Scott was also another character actor, played his wife, uh, and Lucille Benson. Do you remember when we watched Halloween 2? Yeah. Um, 
uh, and uh, like the original Halloween too, not right. Rob Zombies. Um, and there was that woman who was make, making a sandwich and everything, and it was Michael stalking in the background. She was the sandwich woman. She played the, also like the reptile okay. woman in this movie. Okay. So fun fact, she also reprises that role in Steven Spielberg's 1941. Nice. Yeah. That uh, that um, reptile scene, by the way. I mean, you know that I have an absolute, you know, fear of. Of snakes, especially any poisonous snakes. I, that I do little, too. That ju- that one rattlesnake. I was, you know, I was just watching it, and Jess was just watching with me, my girlfriend, and uh, snake jumps and cool, and she's of course laughing at me. But yet at the um, same time, like it's a good scare. I also felt for this, like the not not only the snakes, but the woman's like these snakes don't deserve to get run over by a giant truck. See, I that's where I kind of gained some sympathy for the the truck and the truck driver. <laughs> <laughs> the one time you're gonna you're gonna side with a truck driver. The only thing though that you know bothered me was like all those snakes are now not in a cage. <laughs> so. But they're in a desert, so that's where they came from. Yeah, it's true. Um, so this this um, this 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 week's episode is gonna be is a little different because uh, normally I do this show with my normal co-host Nick, but he said to take a temporary leave of absence and. Uh, out of respect for him, whenever I used to have guests on, I never used to do the format of the show that we created together with anyone else. Uh, he's given me his blessing, so I figured, well, it's the first time I've done this format without him, realistically. I figured, well, I've been mean to see Duel. I've had your copy forever. And I was like, this seems like a perfect excuse for me to watch it and then discuss it because you're one of the few people I know who I've had as many conversations as we have had about Steven Spielberg well, and like dissecting him and his career. And I thought, well, I need to watch this movie anyway. So I'm very uh, honored to be a part of uh, this sort of, not just this podcast, but this version of the podcast where we talk about things that are on people's shameless. Because I, when you told me about this idea, when you started it, I thought it was just a really smart way of doing a movie podcast there's so many you know there are so many movie podcasts out there yeah but to like go in and be like everyone has films that they want to see that they haven't seen and to like make a a podcast about like okay we're actually going to go through and check check all these boxes and see all these movies i think it's sometimes sometimes movies just escape you like i would I probably would have seen it eventually, but I wouldn't have seen The Godfather without this show. Okay. There's nothing against it. It's just one of those movies that it's it's been on my list for a while, but there was nothing pushing me to yeah. see it. There wasn't like this nagging internally that I need to see The Godfather. I was like, oh, it'll happen eventually. Uh, and especially because this happened to me all the time in film school. So I'm like, oh, have you seen The Godfather? Yeah, it's great. You just <laughs> you don't want to admit the fact sure. that you haven't seen something. So you're like, you you lie. Yeah. And because you, it's almost like this this fear of like rejection that like oh I haven't seen this big because it still happens to me like where like I've got you know, since I have seen so many movies I've got family members like oh have you not seen this you've seen everything mm-hmm. I'm like I haven't and <laughs> you know you're making me want to see this movie less <laughs> <laughs> yeah so when did Duel get put on your shame list um, funny enough it's I guess technically it's been on my shame list for because eventually I want to work through Spielberg's entire filmography not necessarily working on it in order just mm-hmm. filling in the gaps so it's always kind of been there but i think it was talking with you one time when you're ta- you're kind of confessing your love for it okay uh that like well 
because I, I all I knew about it was a car it was a car chase movie and I and I, I, I happen to like car chase movies quite a bit even though I'm not much of a car guy but I just I it was a movie that no one really ever talked about from Spielberg's career yeah part of it because it's so early on so there's you know there's probably a lot of people just assume jaws was his first movie right um but it is a tv movie yeah well so some people might not consider it one even though it definitely is a film yeah like he did he did this he did sugarland express yeah i think there might have been something in between those two i don't remember um but those those were the two big ones before he did jaws um but like just hearing you talk about how much you like it and then you happen to have a copy of it. I'm like, well, shit. Yeah. You know, when I first saw it, I, I wasn't expecting a lot out of it. Cause I'm like, what can you do with a, what can you really do with a, a car being chased by a truck for a full length movie? And I will say it's not a perfect film by no. a stretch of imagination, no. but it's, you know, and hearing that it's a TV movie, my expectations for it were rather low going into it. Uh, but it surprisingly holds its own. And it surprisingly, for a TV film, has a lot of style, which I think is contributed completely to Spielberg and what he wanted that movie to do for his career going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also, like... There's there, there people say that there's there's three types of directors. There's the ones who are really technical. Yep. There's the ones who are really technical, and I guess because of that style heavy. Yep. Um, there's the ones who know how to schmooze the big wigs and get their way into jobs, and there's the ones that can work with actors. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a mixture of all three. Yeah. And while he he made a film that with essentially one actor you know they're supporting people around it but essentially one actor fascinating yeah that's not an easy task not at all to have it be one actor yeah working against a piece of machinery tech kind of um is a it's a it's quite the task you know for your first film to do something like that i apologize if uh you happen to hear a lawnmower in this recording. Yeah, we're not, I'm not recording my my usual studio. That's a lie. It's not a studio. It's a bedroom. But, uh, uh, you know, we're going to make do. We're going to make do with the sound. Um, just like if you hear any tapping of the mics, because I'm not using my normal mic, and I'm actually holding one. So, you know, ignore the sound of the mics. Um, but, no, I, I – being on my shame list, like I said, uh, I – I guess I kind of knew I was going to enjoy the film anyways, but like I said, I was, it was like, I felt like I was white knuckle the entire, for, for most of the movie. And it's, it's got a very similar quality to what I loved so much. I would say Quentin Tarantino's death proof where he's able to make one long car chase work. Okay. Where it does never seems dull. And when he does choose to get off, when they do choose to get off the road, it's, it's some really great character building moments. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I, I actually really think helps this movie, at least for me for some reason, is you know pretty early on that it's not just like a, a truck that's trying to drive him off the road. Like it's not this weird mystical truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's clearly a person inside. You know, he's waving at him mm-hmm. and, you know, up to up to his own mischief. 
There's something sadistic behind that. Person. Right. You know that. Yeah. You know that it's the element that's chasing him is human. Um, and the fact that there's just this kind of murderous rampaging person behind this truck is it. It grounds the story, I want to say. It grounds it. But at the same time, um, it's it's a weird mixture where the movie's grounded because you realize it's a person. Mm-hmm. And like even little things were like you know the truck will tell him to pass him is like oh maybe he's gonna let up and he just uses a way to bait him into something else yeah but there, there is almost like because you never see the driver and it it is it personifies a truck that there is like this almost mystic like mystical element to it and i think a big part of that is uh i don't know how familiar you are with richard matheson uh not super he's best known for writing the book I Am Legend. Oh, okay. But he was also a big time contributor for the Twilight Zone. Nice. And you read this, you watch this movie, and it feels like a long extended Twilight Zone episode. Totally. Yeah, you're totally right about that. Where it's 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 human but mystical at the same time. And the the idea for the story, from what I'm told, came from, it, of all times, it came the night that JFK was assassinated. Richard Matheson was driving home with a producer friend of his, and they're, uh, and they're like up in Laurel Canyon in California, so it's really tight roads and everything. And there's a truck just coming up behind them, blaring his horn and almost coming in contact with their bumper a couple of times just to fuck with them. And he said it, it, it's disturbed him so bad that he went home and just recited it all into a microphone so he didn't forget it and was trying to pitch it for like TV shows like Twilight Zone-esque type TV shows and everyone turned it down. So he eventually wrote it into a short story and <laughs> they made it into, into a movie. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. That's really cool because it's funny, like both the good and the bad of Twilight Zone is in this film. Yeah. Like this, one of the things that is like makes the film feel very dated is this use of voiceover yes <laughs> there's and it's a very like it's unnecessary i get that they're trying to like get you into the character's mind but i almost feel like it's a little his, on the nose yeah it's on the nose and his conflicts are very easy conflicts for an audience to understand that you don't necessarily have to throw it in their face with I, I feel like i well i feel like that was chosen because it is on television i agree and yeah. tell especially at the time television was for the masses right um it's kind of like the in the old hitchcock adage where it's like he he could he could make a film that does not have say something like narration and grip 75 80 percent of the audience or he can add it and get 99 percent of the audience yeah so like i get it i i also feel like unless i feel like if anything they could have like if they wa- really wanted to give us something else to chew on, like take sound bites from stuff that happened, or kind of like in Psycho, when Marion Cringe driving and she's she's not thinking to herself, she's hearing all the conversations previously yep. in the day, yep. and I feel. But same time, I uh, we wa- I watched the theatrical version of this film, which is longer than the one that was on television, and things like the conversation with his wife were added later on. Okay, gotcha. So might not have worked it's interesting because i do feel like the film is is a little long the sequences hold up but they do get you know the suspense sequences of him against the truck uh they hold up 
for the most part, but it does just stretch out a little well, more than even the very to. ending. We're, we're going to skip around, and there's going to be spoilers in this. Even the very ending, where like the truck is like in agony, you know, agony after it falls off the cliff, and yeah. you know, Spielberg defends that choice, which I don't think was a bad choice at all. Uh, I just thought it needed it could be cut down, but at the same time, I don't know if it was originally shorter because. Excuse me. The producers told him it's not long enough for a movie, and you need to extend the film if you <laughs> if we're going to play it in a theater anywhere. So there you go. Yeah. Who knows? But no, I agree. I feel like there's times where it was a little long, and some sequences. And I think it's the sequences that were added later on. I didn't dig. I I didn't mind the conversation of him and his wife. I thought that was telling. Uh, this the scene with the school bus. I didn't really get behind. Okay. Yeah. And that was in that that was an added oh, scene. Okay. But what is uh, interesting about that scene with he and his wife is um, I'm kind of I'm shocked that that wasn't in the uh, the TV version because it it roots that character. Finally, you like you go, okay, so he's got somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't go to this meeting, he's going to lose this account. Mm -hmm. But. If he doesn't get back to his wife in time, she's going to be angry with him. She's already angry with him. So it's it's really the only scene in the whole film that you get to understand who the character is. No, it is. And like you you tell from that scene of his wife that, you know, he didn't he didn't stand up for her. Yeah. He's a more like I said in my description, he's a meek person. He doesn't like confrontation. That all builds up to what like like it's such a satisfying moment near the end of the film where like he gets into the car with confidence, puts on his his awesome sunglasses, <laughs> and is like, "I'm gonna go head on with this fucking truck." Yeah, and I was like, that felt earned because of that conversation later on. Yeah, totally. Um, one thing I thought was a little strange uh, was at the very very beginning, like when we're getting bits and pieces of like the radio shows and everything. Oh, sure. Which and we get this one person call, like I assume it's like a morning talk show and they're doing a like comedy bits and whatnot. Yep. But it's like a, it's supposed to be a really meek person calling an insurance company and complaining about how his wife was wearing the pants in the family. <laughs> like my first like, I imagine it was like like I said I really think it's one of those you know shock jock type things when they're just they call businesses and do characters and whatnot. No reaction from him the entire time. Mm-hmm. But then it's like later on another show. He's la he's laughing constantly. I'm wondering if that was put there because it drives too close to home for him, so he doesn't find it funny. Well, it's interesting too because later in the film, not much later in the film, he's at that gas station, mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's another there's another bit. I don't remember the exact words, but the the gas station attendant is saying something along the lines of like. Uh, being the the sort of breadwinner of of the family or having the pants on, and he goes, "Oh, mm -hmm. not in my house." Yeah, so, he makes some com yeah. comments. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's clearly like he needs this for himself, in right? A weird way. Right, and it, I guess in the TV version, if they don't have that scene with his wife, that is literally the only like backstory you get of the character, which is a fascinating thing. Yeah. Uh, because, like I said, this, for me, this movie works because of that conversation mm -hmm. scene of his wife. Yep. Not only did I like just the way that Spielberg shot his stuff of him on the phone. Yeah. Like, 
I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Just the way that he he it was a four three screen. He really found a way to fill the screen. But like I said, it's just it's, this is this is gonna go back towards like the mystical element and the reason why like it feels like a Twilight Zone episode. And because Richard Matheson is very much like a, a morality play type science fiction writer, um, where it's like so here's this this guy, you know, he's a salesman. He is, you know, late for an appointment. His wife is nagging him. He doesn't feel any confidence in himself. And at his lowest point, here comes an obstacle for him to overcome. Mm-hmm. So it's like while it's trying to kill him, you know, if you want to think like really high concept, it was put there for a reason. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to, you can go right into that. That style of that scene is pretty. Yeah, because especially because TV at the time. And I say at the time, but this was this was true all the way up until I want to say as little as five years ago, where he, you know, there was always like the screen's too small, you can't do anything creative. It's just it's just close. It's De Palma says TV was the land of close-ups. And that's the reason he didn't like using a lot of close-ups because he said it made it feel like you're a TV director. Huh. You have a bigger frame, use the frame. That being said, Spielberg found a way to and it's not just even in this movie i've went back and watched clips of some of the tv episodes he's directed and he finds a way to fill the frame in a very interesting way this little things like framing characters like when the woman is doing her laundry she left the thing um laundry door open and you can see through it it frames them in a very interesting way yep. the way he'll split the screen with David Mann in the background and the truck split down the middle, all things that for all intents and purposes, TV directors normally didn't do because Spielberg came in at think, thinking about it cinematically. Right. And like you, you still get it today. It's like, well, you know, you, the small screen is not a place for things like that, but true filmmakers say, you know, it doesn't matter what size the screen is. You shoot it cinematically. What I tried to bring to TV was a lesser, Emphasis on the close-up because the movies I learned from were really about master shots and letting the audience kind of look at the overview and kind of be their own film editor sometime. I used to love those old movies like Orson Welles, certainly, and John Ford, you know, shot wide. Howard Hawks shot wide. But when Hawks and Ford went in for the close-up, it was to tell a story. It was to drum home a point. And they used the close-up as a powerful tool of narrative storytelling. Television seemed to use a close-up because screens were so small, they wanted people to see what the actors were saying. They wanted to get mouth movement, so they would shoot all the TV shows like that. So when I came to television, I kind of went back to wider shots, and it got me, in a strange way, you know, noticed, uh, simply because I was shooting wider than most television directors. So I look back at it and say, you know, I was so hungry back then, I was so ambitious, I was so excited about having been given this chance. It was a great experience for me to start out in TV that way. Well, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, there's two ways to convey information. You know, you can do it the, was it the old old Russian way where they, the montage, mm-hmm. where it's you're cutting two images. And crazy Russians just fucking with images. That's right. And you're creating meaning from those two images being cut together. Or you, you put the camera in a place where you can convey multiple ideas into one or in this case instead of cutting from um you know the the lead character to the truck you're putting them both in the same frame and he's Mm -hmm. doing that constantly however 
you mentioned a little bit, you are kind of touching on the Spielberg one there again, but before we get on to that, because that's kind of topic of its own, he kind of does an interesting mix of mix of the two. Where sure. I'm, I'm a big fan of the French New Wave, and I can, if you study it enough, you can see its influence everywhere. You can see it as overtly, as, you know, as overdone as like Tarantino used to do it. But then even something as simple as like versus Spielberg, I think it all tends to purpose is a very elegant style mm-hmm. or way he likes to move the camera. But there was times near the end when he was amping up the pacing, where like the music and the images were cutting together in a way to just kind of amp up your heart rate. Like it was cutting between. It was uh, the sequence where his car's starting to die, and it's cut between the gauges on his car to him back to the truck, and it's constantly yeah. cutting. And because he does it so sparingly, it feels earned. Totally. Well, that's a big thing, I think, because um, this film is almost like, in many ways, it, it feels like a horror movie. Yeah. Because it's building tension, releasing it. Um, it, it has one or two uh, jump scares in it, which is kind of fun. Um, but what what i think all horror movie directors need to to learn in terms of building suspense is you always have to be what you're doing now like what you're doing early in the in the film cinematically shot selection and edit wise affects everything later on yes um so if you're doing that sort of crazy cut style early in the film mm-hmm. it won't pay off and i should i shouldn't even just say it's a horror movie thing i think it's a movie thing in general if you're doing that style later on it's not going to feel as impactful when you do it or yeah if, when you if you do it early it's not going to feel as impactful later it's like telling a joke yeah if you if you if you if you flub up and go right to the punchline the joke's ruined right um and i'm it's given an example of sometimes when this is done subtly when people aren't even realizing is when uh, things like that happen. It was like, for example, uh, it gets a lot of crap, but Rob Zombie's Halloween, his first one. Uh, an intentional thing that he decided to do was he shot the entire first half of the film all on all on dollies and steady cams, and but it wasn't until Michael killed his sister then he started moving it off and slowly became less and less steady cam and was doing it all handheld. Nice. Something that yeah. most people aren't going to notice, but it's there to help tell the story. And it's I think it's the reason why there's 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 some action films nowadays I can't get behind because I they don't have a clear idea of what they're doing with their style. Mm-hmm. Never once in this film did I feel like Spielberg didn't know where he wanted to put the camera. Every it's he shot car chases in a way that is very aesthetically pleasing. Like he like he'd and he'd hold on shots. You know, like if he put a, if he put, if he rigged a camera to the to the hood of the car, he stayed on that shot for a while. Yep or camera in from inside the car he stayed on that shot for a while and it's honestly in the one cart car chase sequence in solo that's how ron howard shot his well, sequences sure. too you watch that that opening s- speeder chase in solo and you watch duel they shoot their chases in the same way man i didn't even think about that but it is totally true and i love like Solo's a movie that's a very like it's a very okay film, but that speeder chase in the beginning is a great. It's like, like just there's a moment where he's he's uh, I don't remember the actor who played Solo. I can't uh, think Alden of his name. Alden yeah, they they have the camera just right on the hood, facing right towards him, and you know everything's moved like and they just hold on him 
for I don't want to say uncomfortably long because it just feels uncomfortably long compared to how everyone else does it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, that's a very, you know, f- uh, French connection, you know, bullet way to shoot a, a chase. Yeah, it felt very old school in a way. And but like, it was refreshing. There's a lot of things in that movie that did. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like the Godfather-esque lighting, <laughs> the, you know, the, the fact that um, uh, Woody Harrelson looked like fucking Errol Flynn. Like, <laughs> yep. it just felt like a man who loves movies. But we're not here to talk about Solo. But it was just an example of... How these, 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 the, I don't want to say, there, I don't want to say there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, but the ways that work still work. Yep. That's definitely true. I think that's a, it's, it's weird because as a filmmaker, you're trying to study what works and what will always work, mm-hmm. but then also what used to work and what doesn't work anymore. I think, yeah. um, again, not to go out too off topic. No, we go on tangents all the time in this show. Feel free. (laughs) But, you know, I think going back to, like, horror, what scared people in the 70s doesn't scare people today. I don't know a whole lot of people that are scared by, like, Halloween anymore. And that's not because it's a a bad movie, because it's not. It's a very solid film. But it's just we, as as a film viewers, we have evolved past that type of scare. And horror is a genre that has to constantly reinvent itself because its audiences are getting used to the types of scares that's throwing at you yeah like if 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 they were to make (coughs) duel today it would essentially be a fast and the furious movie it would it would lose those horror elements i Mm -hmm. think and would amp up the action because what really works for me in duel is the fact that it's it it's not just it's not a horror film it's not really an action film i don't like the term thriller always just feels weird to me because a thriller is just a horror film that people don't want to admit it's a horror film um it rides this in between that works so well Mm -hmm. and part of it is because of matheson's script and combined with like the way that um, Spielberg cut, uh, works a scene because and a thing that works so well is you know it's you know majority of films are going to have edits and they're going to have cuts uh, Spielberg uses it less and less unless it's necessarily needed uh, because there every time there's a cut in a film it gives you a chance to breathe but the longer you hold on something you hold your breath so that's why for a lot of people, like the horror films, and even not just horror films, but kind of what we're talking about, uh, this is the reason a lot of horror films don't work for people is because they're too sporadic. And, you know, the reason, say, something like The Conjuring works so well is because it's unrelentless for how long it'll hold on to something. Totally. Well, it's so funny because, I, you know, you look at Duel and I feel like that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of what you're saying. But, yeah, if you, you know, you watch that film... Those chase sequences are relentlessly long, mm-hmm. but you are, you know, you're sucked into it because you don't know where it's going next. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes, I mean, that's what makes good suspense in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way that you do that, you know, is if you're, if you're able to hold on to things for longer, I think the, my, my favorite sequence of suspense ever is, in the original Mission Impossible, where 
um like sweat where drops yeah the sweat drops yes. where they're they're breaking into um to get the Knox list and uh and that you know is i haven't gone and like counted how many shots there are there certainly are a good number of shots but that sequence primarily works because you're holding on to these shots you're you're framing them so that you can just let the shot play out and let the audience l- yeah the camera doesn't cut unless, until it. it you know this is like a, a high brow way of thinking the cam- the camera the, the the film doesn't cut until it needs to yeah and dual to an extent i think does a lot of that what is fascinating about dual when you think about dual and then you think about the fact that like a a movie or two later he's doing jaws is jaws you barely see the shark duel you're seeing the beast the whole time it's funny when spielberg first was trying to pitch himself for jaws because the story goes that he stole the script from zanuck's office and was written and he's like i you have to let me direct this and and apparently he described it as it's duel in the water (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i think it's it's funny watching that um Everyone should go watch the HBO doc on Spielberg yeah. if you can. Because uh, what is both, I don't know, part of, it kind of broke my heart a little bit to learn this. Um, but it is kind of fascinating at the same time is Jaws was supposed to show a lot of the shark. Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole like idea of Spielberg's genius of, ooh, holding back like and not showing the, the creature like happened because... The creature didn't work. <laughs> they get to set and the creature didn't work. Otherwise, he wouldn't be known as the, that genius. I'm surprised the it breaks your heart because he's a, essentially a deity in, in filmmaking where everyone just thinks, oh, he's a genius. He gets everything right every time. For me, it humanizes him in a way and, show, and makes it, I can relate more to him now. He's a person that wanted to make a film and had a, had a clear idea of what he wanted to do. And that clear idea was thrown out the window. So he's like, well, I need to get creative and come up with something. And especially if you go and with watching Duel, it's like I can relate to that movie so hard because like, here's a young filmmaker who's trying to make a cool movie who's wearing his influences on, the, on his sleeve. So much so that he's such a huge Hitchcock fan. The score sounded like the score for Psycho. <laughs> yeah, it did. I mean, there's a complete not in a like, bad way, but yeah. it's, it's just like it felt like he he really wanted the music for Psycho. Yeah. Uh, so that's what that does for me is like was that I feel like if anything, it just solidified that he's a man with very clear vision who's able to adapt. I think that's a fair point. It's a very fair point. Oh. One thing I will comment on, because I still want to get onto the topic of war about the Spielberg Warner you're going to talk about. I love listening to interviews with him. So, like, when he when he shot Duel, you know, the producer's like, well, let's do, it, let's do a process screen, fake car, you know, and, you know, do it that way. And Spielberg's like, no, we need to shoot actually out in the roads and make it real and everything. And the producer's like, 
if you can do that in 10 days, go for it. But you need to at least do us a favor and shoot the pro driving process shots so we can fall back on that. Is it cool? First of all, I didn't quite know how I was going to achieve this in 10 days. They were giving me 10 days to shoot about 73 minutes of film with commercials that fills out the hour and a half of the ABC Movie of the Week format. I didn't quite know how I could do this thing in 10 days. They assigned me a highly regarded production manager named Wallace Worsley. And Wallace was kind of gruff and uh, tough. He was a pussycat on the inside, but on the outside he was a gruff and tough person who looked at me and often gave these derisive snorts of, yeah, prove it, prove you can make this into a movie, because if you can't, your history, son, will bring somebody else in who can. And I really respected that. He took a hard line position with me, because I said to him, I'm going to shoot this all on location. And he said to me, you cannot shoot a movie of this scale on location in 10 days. You need to send somebody else out to shoot all these plates and do it on a soundstage with process. And I said, Wally, I don't want to shoot this if I have to go inside. It's going to look fake. You can look out all the windows of the car. It won't be a chase. It'll be a guy comfortably sitting on a soundstage with bad process out the windows, which is always out of sync with the way the grips move the car. The car moves this way. The process goes that way. It never works. And Wally said, if you spend the first half of the first day of shooting, shooting plates, so we have those banked, and then if you stay on schedule for the first three days, then you can shoot the whole thing on location. Otherwise, you've got to come back to the studio. And I said, okay. And that was the thing I had to prove, that I could stay on schedule. So I didn't have to go back inside to make a real fake looking movie inside. And then Jaws came about and he was like, oh, I don't want to shoot this in a tank. I want to shoot this on the ocean. But then like he go later on when he goes and makes like Indiana Jones because <laughs> yeah. of, because of the style he's trying to ape. He's like, "Let's do process shots. Let's do things on stages." And yeah. Because that's the style he's trying to mimic. But I love that early on he was all like, "Man, we need, this needs to be pure cinema." And then he's like, "What's easier?" Well, I think it's it is sort of interesting. You know, people talk a lot about this with George Lucas where he's someone who quote unquote turned into the thing that he hated which i think is to some extent is true and to some extent it's not but with spielberg he certainly changed at least in his approach approach to action um and how he does it the the you know from going to from realistic realism and sticking you know to practical stunts to then doing indiana jones or things are a little bit more um a little bit more CGI based. He then completely flips the script for something like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or Ready Player One, where it's just CGI mm -hmm. thrown at you um, all the time, and that's that's sort of a shame. Yeah, you know? and like while well, it's, I would still go on. I would still say I, I like uh, Spielberg still a lot, but yeah, he has kind of become the thing he hates, uh, and. Um, Part of that is because when he was young, he was young and idealistic. But yeah. like, and like you're saying, people always say Lucas is the one that became what he hated. Lucas has always been that person. You watch THX 1138, he was that person from the beginning. Yeah. And he always knew the type of filmmaker he was. Mm -hmm. If anything, the one film that's unlike anything else he's made was American Graffiti. That's the one on my shame list. It's on mine too. Oh great! I own it, so we can watch that. Sometime. That could be Talk next time because I might need more. I might need more <laughs> more guest hosts once in a while. Nice. Um, it's funny, like how like how how much like Lucas Spielberg has become. 
Um, one thing I will say is like tangential to duel. People need to leave fucking George Lucas alone. That's true. Like, yeah, I'm getting sick of hearing Star Wars fans being like, oh, he ruined my childhood and things. It's like if you because like I, I used to know a guy who said he would never watch Star Wars again because it's not what he remembered being sick. I was like, if you really ever loved that franchise, your love for it wouldn't waver because they added in some CGI creatures. Right. I don't know. Uh, listeners should know if I ever, you know, if I am brought back on to this podcast, we will probably go on Star Wars tangents a lot because it is. We should eventually. We could just do an episode <laughs> where we just let everything yes. go. Just do it. Just uh, do a big Star Wars episode. I'm a bit of a major Star Wars fan, um, <laughs> but I agree with you. I think Lucas has got a lot of flack that has been undeserved, and I think now. Um, now what's interesting with these new films that have come out mm-hmm. is now everyone's giving those films the same fleck that they gave Lucas's. And the new films, for all intents and purposes, at least um, the first one, um, Force Awakens, was giving the fans what they've been claiming they wanted. Yeah. Like, looking back, while I don't necessarily love... I love the prequels in a weird way because I grew up with them. Me too. But they don't hold my attention as well as mm-hmm. they used to. Yep. But I com- I commend Lucas for trying something different. Like, I'm not talking about, like, the way he shoots lightsaber battles and all that shit. It's like, this st- he was trying more complex. He was trying to build that world more. That's what's really... That's what Lucas is really great at, is building worlds in an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, story-wise, he sometimes gets too caught up in mythology, and he gets too caught up in writing his own stuff because when he writes it obviously his dialogue is atrocious i was Um, gonna say garbo but that works too (laughs) yeah but man does he know how to build build a universe you know you look at those those prequel films and those planets that they're on are fleshed out and beautiful and well thought out and granted they're well thought out because it's not just lucas making them either it's a bunch of other talented artists that he's hired around him to help build those planets. And I mean, he's putting a stamp of approval on everything, but he does have this great ability to collaborate and create this hive mind to, uh, to make a film. He lets creative people be creative. Mm -hmm. And he's the first one. And like the prequel films are some of the most successful independent films of all time. Cause he didn't have anyone bankrolling those. He produced them himself. And that's something too, that I think, um, when I think about Lucas and why people need to quote unquote leave him alone, it's because A, he's got guts being able to be like, okay, I'm going to throw my own money at all this. You know, he's, he's got guts betting on himself to begin with with the first Star Wars. And then mm-hmm. they just continually do that is, um, is something that should be commended. And then second off, like as a person, that dude is amazing. The amount of like philanthropic work that he's done because of the money he's made from Star Wars, which is not something he had to do, is like something that's commendable and to me I'm like, leave the dude alone. Like he does not deserve but, your flack. But Kyle, he approved Jar Jar Binks. Oh never mind, I guess. <laughs> I guess all of the all, like all I can say is Jar Jar Binks is just the newer version of C three PO knowing a character no one wanted, but you know, what are you gonna do? 
anyway back on to duel yeah. uh so at the very beginning of this when we were just kind of uh, meandering near the beginning you were talking about the most scorsese spielberg warner you have <laughs> ever seen tell me a little bit about which i feel like i know which one you're talking about yeah so he's going into um he's going into the diner uh I be- yeah i believe he's going into the diner he's from outside he's walking yep. in you've got someone who's telling because he's asking where the bathroom is and they're telling mm-hmm. him oh you go straight then you take a left and then it's two doors on the right it's kind of like actually a little like the directions are a little long which i find kind of funny but then he's just he's walking through this diner and it follows him um well it it's moving ahead of him like the camera's looking Mm -hmm. at his face and it's following him through the diner into the bathroom closes the door in the bathroom and just sort of takes a few moments to himself and it just like it's like the opposite shot of Goodfellas. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though I think Duel, I'm pretty sure Duel, yeah, Duel definitely came out before Goodfellas. But it's it's just like one of those like, oh, this is a one shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can. And like, the one thing I will say though, I love that cafe scene. Like Absolutely. other than like the kind of on the nose narration, yep. like just watching him put together who he thinks the person is. You know, like everything from going off the boots mm-hmm. to just watching the way people watch him, and yeah, then him slapping that guy's sandwich. He took, he slapped my sandwich. It's like you finished that sandwich. Shut <laughs> up. But, like, but that's like what you're talking about. You know, with suspense, that is a great sequence of suspense. Yeah, it's 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 it builds it builds up the paranoia, mm-hmm. builds up the idea of not knowing. He knows the truck driver is there. And I love to, we never figure. And then like Spielberg does a great job of like misleading us. So cause there's that one, I think it might be the person you're saying. Uh, the, Looks like Henry Fonda. Yeah. Like yeah. where it's kind of like, he's kind of giving him weird looks and he focuses most on his face and everything. And then he just, and then like when you eventually see him walking towards the truck and he pulls out in his own truck, it's like, that's yeah. just brilliantly done. Well, you know, it's really like what, what gets me about that scene is, you see the cowboy boots of the first guy. And you're like, oh, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. And then it like very quickly shows you like, oh, here's this Henry Fonda look like. He's got some boots that look similar. And now you're in that's your own That's the mind. guy. You're trying yeah. to remember what those boots <laughs> right. looked like. And then later on, there's another set of boots. And you're like, oh, gosh, I don't even remember anymore. And it's totally like what you would do if you were an actual person with in yeah, this situation. And, and, <laughs> like, and then like he's, he's trying to figure it out. He's like, what if I just talk to the guy? You know, um, biggest thing I thought of that he should have done. Why didn't he just go home? Would the truck have followed him back towards the city? You you know, I thought about that too. I think that (laughs) he, uh, I think the truck probably would have, but it does like the minute he goes, Oh, I'm definitely going to be late for my meeting. I'm like, he's, well, go back to your wife because she's angry at you. So at least make something happen. Um, the biggest thing to me that he should have done is in that diner been like, Who's the asshole in the truck? <laughs> and right. Just, <laughs> then you don't have to guess. And then the second biggest thing he should have done in that diner is added some meat to that sandwich. That's who, true. Who right. just gets Swiss, Swiss and, on, on rye. rye? And he spelt oh. out rye. Yes, R-Y-E. It's like, are you like are you from New York originally? <laughs> like, why are you so particular about your rye bread? I don't know. I thought well, that it was does, pretty great. It, uh, what's really cool about um, that character is... He is 
definitely a fish out of the water. Mm-hmm. Not only is the car that he's in just, you know, kind of look like this nice city slicker car, but the clothes that he's wearing is different than everyone else around him, too. And then him just saying that R.Y.E. as if he thinks of himself as a little higher than well, like I'm sure can. like that woman rolled her eyes so hard. Right. I was like, I know what rye bread is. Right. Like, but uh, she gave him a jump scare. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, something else I was going to say, too. Uh, oh, I want to and it, I want to talk about uh, um, a good guy truck driver for a second. Okay. Where like I love what the truck gets the kids out of the ditch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like completely not necessary, other than just like I can't even think of like why the truck would do it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, unless it to me it's like another. The whole time the truck driver is psychologically manipulating the guy right Mm -hmm. um and the guy's trying to figure out if he's bad or not even though like he clearly is when he's pushing that uh the school bus out you know it cuts back to him and he's kind of like hmm maybe he's all right you know for another second it's just like this really strange like every when you've like had enough of this guy and you're like okay this truck driver he's He's the shits. He's awful. He does do like one little thing, whether it's the, the wave. Like, oh, come on, you can. Yeah, pay. and like, cause the wave too. I was like, well, maybe he's like finally being like, okay, I'm done fucking with you. Right. But then for me, the moment that it like, snap, like, was when he plowed through that phone booth. It's like, oh, this truck. Cause like I kept thinking, it's like, like what, what, what does he just want to? Cause I kept thinking, oh, does he want to just beat up the car? Like, does he is he actually out to kill him? Sure. But then well, once he rolled through that. Because I assume he assumed that he was on the phone with the police. As soon as he did that, I was like, oh, no, this truck driver is going to kill this guy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But he's not going to use his hands. <laughs> no. He's going to use his truck. Uh, one thing you were saying earlier was that this film is, you know, it's a horror film, but it's not. It's an action film. That's not. And in many ways, I feel like that is something that Spielberg does in general with his films. You know, you look at Indiana Jones and it's one part, you know, it's two parts action, one part humor, one part romance. Um, and that that is true, I think, of a lot of good, just high quality um, sort of box office films as they have oh. a bunch of elements. I think Jaws too, you know, it's weird. Like for me, Jaws is not a horror film. For a lot of people it is. But for some reason it's not to me. And I think it's because... There's so many like dramatic elements that are built into that film um, that I sort of like feel it's more of a drama than it's a horror film, even though it is definitely got a lot of horror in it. Do you think Jurassic Park's a horror film? No, not at all. Because for a lot of people, that is as well. Right. And to me, it's much more sci-fi action adventure than it is horror. But that's again, it's a film that has it has the action, it has the adventure, but it has horror to it. Oddly enough, Spielberg has said in interviews that like he always wanted to make a straight horror film. But once he had the clout to make whatever project he wanted to, he couldn't because he became for lack of a better term, kind of became that family friendly director. Yeah, got trapped into his own and thing. There's always been a lot of debate back and forth about Poltergeist, who directed, who didn't. Um, the um, 
I was listening to a podcast one time with the camera op on that movie who says um, they technically both did direct it, but Spielberg brought Hooper on because one, he was trying to help him out, and two, Hooper came on knowing that Spielberg wanted to get a chance to direct some of these horror scenes without having to put his name on something. Sure. Because he also had like the issue where he couldn't, because he was directing another film at the time, he couldn't technically direct to, it became a whole thing. So he essentially brought Hooper on as like a, a fall guy. Not a, yeah. that's wrong well, way to right. say it. Not a fall guy, but like. As a vehicle. Yeah, as a vehicle. To... And like, let's direct this <laughs> together because it definitely feels, you can feel Spielberg oh, in there. You yeah. can feel Hooper in there. And like, it's been said before that Spielberg is kind of overbearing sometimes, like on set. But I don't feel like he ever, it's ever done in a way to to be a jerk. I think he just likes making movies so much. Yeah. But I've always been curious to see what um, what Spielberg could have done. Like I, I heard, uh, I don't. I wish I could remember a site where I've heard this from from before because like Spielberg said, "Oh, I've had horror movie ideas that would scare the pants off people. I just can't do them." And like apparently he had an idea for E.T. 2 at one point where it was going to be Elliot and his friends and everything trying to communicate with E.T. Uh, and they send a signal out there and a ship comes and it's actually a different species of aliens. Okay. And they get kidnapped and so she tortured for 90 minutes. And then E.T. shows up at the very end and saves them. <laughs> I was like, I oh, he wanted to make a movie about kids getting tortured by aliens. Cool. I want to see that movie because I want to see E.T. try to save. <laughs> he just waddles in. <laughs> right. Um Oh, he comes in like a big mech suit like at the end of Aliens. This is what I will say about this. Spielberg, if if you're ever listening, um, make your damn horror movie. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. You're like, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. You can like, you know, and especially like and especially like with scenes in Ready Player One, you've shown that you've got a love for the horror genre. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that recreation of the Shining Hotel was pretty was pretty great. Um, and then, you know, yes, you've got burning stories you want to tell, like The Post and Lincoln and everything. But and those are great, too. Do something fun. Right. Do something you want to do. Yeah, do something you want to do. Do something you've never done before. And just, yeah, go for it. That's, you know, that's something that I think, like, when we talk about style directors, my big problem with style directors is that they can't get out of their style. They yeah. can't, uh, and everything becomes sort of si- too similar. Um, and, and that's one thing I think that Mario Scorsese did really well is he, not every movie feels like Goodfellas or Casino. Mm-hmm. Well, people, I think the problem is, is that people complain when a director that ha- is known for a style, like leaves it. Like I think about Scorsese in the two thousands um, with, I'm trying to think of when it started, but I know with like Gangs of New York and then I Aviator. Like of, like, I liked both of those movies. I love Aviator, but those are movies that like are not films that people talk about because they don't fit the Scorsese style. Aviators, which Leo should have won the Oscar for, mm-hmm. but that's just me. I hear you. I thought that was one of his best performances, mm-hmm. uh, maybe his best of all time. And yeah, I just it it bugs me that people that some people get too used to a style that when they see a director leave it, um, that they, uh, that they have to like hate them for it. Um, but then, you know, when, when so many directors just keep going with what they do and then they just become stale. Same thing with professional wrestling. 
Totally. I think about how many times, like, so before Roman Reigns was the, the, the object of everyone's hate, it was John Cena. And anytime John Cena would try something new and get out of his, his like, you know, so people would be like, oh, he's too boring. He does the same thing every match. So he starts breaking out new moves, doing new things. I remember the first time he, he, he hit a springboard stunner. Yeah. I'm like, what the, where was this? Yeah. People are all like, oh, he's just bastardizing yeah. this stuff and go back to what you're good at. And he's like, trying too hard. I'm like, yeah. so what do you want from these people? Right. What do you want from John Cena? What do you want from Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg? Like, just be happy for what we're getting like to with martin scorsese like the man has got more energy than filmmakers half his age like i remember wolf of wall street and american hustle came out the same year and wolf of wall street was the what felt like the the film made by a young energetic filmmaker <laughs> out there to prove a point and american hustle felt like it was the film made by uh, a salty old filmmaker who doesn't know how to get out of their style and in fact those roles are reversed totally yeah and David o. Russell was just trying to be Scorsese, not doing it very well. Yeah, it's that movie to me was a a huge letdown because of that. Yeah, um, I and I don't didn't understand the people that really got behind that film because I'm like it just feels like a Scorsese ripoff. Yeah, it just feels like it's just not as good. Where like, you know, while Wolf Wall Street definitely had the Scorsese style, it was just so youthful and mm-hmm. energetic. Well, it takes a lot. of takes a lot of risks like the the lead character is not a character you really like no um yeah and i i mean i know a lot of people who don't like wolf of wall street because they just think it's too hedonistic but i i think what i kind of like about that film is it is taking sort of that root of what scorsese is known for and it's throwing a different a slight variation on that goodfellas story um and just letting excess be excess yeah and like it's for for Spielberg and where where he's gone like he's done so much he could realistically just silently retire and not do like or even just like I would have never in a million years figured he would follow the post with Ready Player One say what you want about Ready Player One but it's a drastically different type of movie that he's been making the last couple of years well I guess not like because he did Tintin and did the BFG oh, yeah, that's true. but like. You know, so like when he did the post, I was like, oh, so he's kind of going back to like that Chandler's list. You know, he wants to tell a personal story. And then I would have never have guessed that he'd even wanted to do Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. Because it didn't feel like it would be something he'd want to do. So it's like it just shows that he's a man. You just you can't you don't know what to expect from him. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you're bringing up uh, BFG and the other one, um, Tintin. Yeah, yeah. So his like it seems like the last. I don't know, decade, decade and a half. It's been these historical dramas, uh, and then coupled with these very CGI intensive action films. Yeah. Or uh, maybe Tintin, and they're more adventure films, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of interesting that he's still, he is doing his action stuff, but it's in a different sort of way. Mm hmm. Um, where he, he is, going back to what we were talking about, uh, embracing uh, CGI and computer effects to do it. But it, it's those those first two, Tintin um, and BFG, are much more like kid-friendly, obviously. Yeah. But I, I love the fact that he's he sort of was able to get himself out of just doing action 
yeah and into doing some drama stuff because i think films like the post Mm -hmm. and uh even to to an extent like lincoln are really good films in his filmography that people should check out i loved the post i thought that that went very underrated i still have to see it yeah that's one you should check out uh the performances are top notch but that story is just told well it's told stylishly it's got a few of those wonders and it's just Mm -hmm. like it's a really sort of in a way like poetic kind of film that you feel like you would have gotten in the 70s or 80s about about reporting yeah um and i mean granted it took place you know it's a nixon sort of story but it's it really is underrated um so, you know, I love that he was able to to get out of just doing action adventure and into doing other kinds of historical things. Now, now though, I think he's done enough of them. So he can now now do something else he hasn't done. And that's what I'd like to see him do is just, like I so said, and I guess he kind of did that with the Ready Player One is I just, I want to see him do things that people aren't expecting. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely one I didn't see coming. Yeah. I just wish I'd like that. Movie. That's fair. Um, he's had a, he's had as many hits as he had. I feel like a couple misses is never a bad thing. It's a good way to ground you as a filmmaker. It's true. Um, well, I, I think nobody should take the Tarantino advice of, oh, you know, do ten movies and then you're out because then you're gonna start making bad movies. Like I don't care. You can keep Spielberg to me. Should and he, I know he's going to do this. He should make movies until he's dead, because he might come out with a few bad ones. But there's gonna be some really honestly great what ones Hitchcock did. Yeah. It's getting so bad to the point where he could barely move, but he still wanted to make movies. Right. And I feel like that old adage of filmmaking is a young man's game is only true if you let it be. Because there's nothing out there dictating age. You know, Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese, they, they, they still can feel make youthful films. Mm-hmm. Um, to me... Uh, Quentin being like, "Oh, once you after a certain point, it's you got to give up." To me, that sounds like a, a filmmaker admitting defeat. That like, yeah. "Oh, I'm running out of ideas, running out of things I want to do." Because like Howard Hawks and John Ford were making movies well into their old age. Were all of them great? No, but well, they if, had yeah. they wanted to make them right, and that's like to me. Tarantino's taking out the challenge of, of being a filmmaker and mm-hmm. being like, Oh, at this point, once I made 10, then it's good. Like, cause he's worried about making a, uh, a failure. Like, don't worry about making a failure. Just try to make good stories. If you, you make a failure once in a while, who cares? Yeah. Like it, but you know, you, we say that. And then we talk about how like Lucas tarnished his legacy by, by making films that people didn't want to see or whatever. And I think that filmmakers nowadays, especially uh, especially with fans being as vocal as they are, um, they have to worry about this whole tarnishing of a legacy because people will, you know, you make one bad movie and people like want your neck for it. Um, yeah. I yeah. just hope that people instead. Like, oh, he was a fluke. Yeah. You know. Instead, I want people to, uh, I want filmmakers to, to just be relentless, keep on making films. Yeah, like one of my favorite things to do is to find a filmmaker I like and to find out, to hear what their favorite movie that they made is and what their least favorite. 
because that way you can, it's, it's kind of an interesting look. Like, for example, I'm a big Brian De Palma guy. Uh, he's one of my favorites. His favorite film that he made was Carlito's Way. Okay. It's not a film that a lot of people talk about. And for my taste, I don't think it's one of his best, but he thinks he thinks that's the best one he made from begin to end and just kind of has everything. He, it, he kind of described his, his thesis statement of filmmaking. What is that? Uh... Do you know what Spielberg's favorite and least favorite are? I've not looked too deeply into that. I'd be kind of curious to find out. Hell, well, I can cut out the dead air. Let's see if I can quick do a Google search and find out what Spielberg's favorite Spielberg directed films? film is. I know, you know, I wonder, like, least favorite, part of me thinks Schindler's list for the fact of the emotional impact that had on him. But mm-hmm. then at the same time, like, he made Jurassic Park right after, or no? He did he Jurassic Park, right Schindler's List, then Jurassic Park Two. Right, like that was a weird couple of years. But you know, he shoots Jurassic Park, and then it's in post. Because I, I remember uh, listening to him talk about how he's uh, he listened to the soundtrack of Jurassic Park on the way to set for Schindler's List, <laughs> which is the weirdest thing ever uh, to think about. But Part of him, I think, also like didn't care about Jurassic Park because he was making this movie that he cared so much about at the same time. Yeah. So I'm curious as to what his favorite and least favorite are, just because it's it's a strange like emotionally, you know, he went through some strange. Yeah, I'm lo- I'm looking it up and see if I can find it relatively quickly, and I'm I'm on like a um a website is given like factoids or whatever uh, about him. Apparently he's a big video game guy. He's a big gamer. Like, no. Yep. Get out of he here. He likes first person shooters. <laughs> so we'll just let that sink in a little bit. Jeez. That uh, Steven Spielberg is a huge fan of first person shooters. Maybe all this, I guess Battlefront's technically a third person. Maybe someday I'll be playing Star Wars Battlefront and Spielberg will be on. How great would that be? Taking me down as an Ewok. I I found an article. Uh, Spielberg says naming a favorite of his many films is the toughest question to answer. So it doesn't have a direct answer, but the ones they seem to be talking about a lot is... is, is, He mentions Duel, E.T., Looks like jaw. So it looks like this is mentioning a bunch of his big ones. So I got to do a little more research on this, but I'm now I'm curious to see what he what he what his personal favorite is. Um, I love that Duel is on that list as like potentially one of his favorite like films that he's directed. Because mm-hmm. you you were saying um, I'm not sure if you said this on on air here or right before, but like he made that film in 13 days. Which yeah. is a crazy short amount of time to make. Something. And of all those stunts and everything, mm-hmm. it's crazy to think nowadays. Movie. I don't want to say movies are easier because that's not the case. There's a lot more that goes into making movies. Yep. But as things become less and less real, I feel it's weird how things take more and more time. Yeah. Well, I think it's because like, people aren't um, disciplining themselves. Yeah. Like you know, you they, this entire film is one long, long car chase. What they do? They got cars and they crashed them into each other. You know, now they would, you know, shoot a plate and yep. create a car, do a previs of it. And it's a whole fucking thing. Think about, though, you know, if you go back and watch that film again, just how much is on this open road with the with these the mountains and 
terrain that you can you kind of tell where it is, but it all kind of looks the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that shooting a lot of that car chase stuff, besides them like crashing into each other or whatever, that stuff was all probably shot really quick. Yeah, I think. And so I don't know. It's always something I've been thinking about because it becomes more and more a thing where it's just easier. It's easier on the set to do these things. But is it realistically easier? So like, think about if you want to do like a big green screen movie, how many people you have to hire just to make that work? Mm-hmm. Where I don't know. I feel like it's in the long run, it'd just be easier to crash a car. Do you know if Spielberg uh, storyboarded Duel? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I feel like I, I'd like to imagine he... Hmm... I've heard mixed things about how Spielberg does this because he said sometimes he said he used to be like a, a storyboard nut. Yep. Um, but then, like, I think, like, there's been some projects, especially something like Jaws, where he said he just gets kind of kits on set and just figures it out. So I'd like to imagine, and I'm, you know, I'm going to stress that I don't know this for sure. I'm just going off of what I think. I'd like to imagine early on he probably did. Yeah, because it's one of those things, you know, you think about now as filmmakers, like this idea of making movies and, you know, just trying to, it feels very like a uphill battle trying to make a good film. And you think of like someone like Spielberg who shot a film in 13 days and you go, man, is that possible? Can we do it? Can we, can you make a movie in 13 days and have it be really good? Um, and it is possible. I think it is possible in this day and age to still do it. But the reason you're able to make a film in 13 days, shooting it in 13 days, is because you're probably putting in a lot of prep time. Yeah. I, I wouldn't like, you know, something like Jaws where it went like 100 days over budget. Like <laughs> that point, like, fuck oh, it. Man. You just, you don't, you, there's not much else you can do. Yeah. He just and you know if your shark's not working, just make it up, figure it out. I can't even like a hundred days. That's just insane. Oh, yeah, it was scheduled for like fifty some odd days, and he went like a hundred and fifty six. Jeez. I I hell if I keep people over a pa- an hour past, <laughs> I'm like oh man, everyone's gonna hate me. That's right. <laughs> that movie though, not to get off of duel, but. Oh, there's so happens. much there's so much humanity in jaws to me i just uh every time i think of jaws i don't think of the shark sequence i think of the scene with him and his kid where they're uh they're sort of m- mimicking each other it's one of the most understated scenes in that because everyone when they think of jaws they, they cite the the indianapolis speech which yeah. is fantastic Absolutely. but that little character piece between brody and his son mm-hmm. and just like a little couple little things throughout the film yeah. that brody does are what works because duel is man versus machine but we never get the humanity because True. um when he made duel they said well you know this is great you know you're great with, you're great with moving pictures and you know doing stunts and everything but uh like we don't know if you can do we don't know how well you know actors and granted he worked with like joan crawford early on in his career and joan crawford's not going to sweat a fool let me tell you (laughs) um 
but then he made Sugarland Express, which is like a kind of a tender lovers on the run movie. And then he does Jaws, which is kind of like a culmination of both of those together and shows mm-hmm. that, hey, I can, I know actors, I know characters, and I know how to put a scene together. And going back to what I was saying before about he can he can schmooze his way with the producers, he can work with actors, and he knows the camera. So much so that he, he chooses to be behind the camera as much as possible. Like, he wants to shoot it hands-on. I don't. No, I <laughs> some more power to him. Maybe maybe I'd make get more stuff done if I if I if I shoot my own stuff. But I was like, yeah, there's people out there better at it than I am. Yeah, I think uh, I think we've kind of exhausted the topic of, of of duel on this one and a little bit of everything in between. So I guess the um, final thing I'm going to ask you is we talked about it a little bit. We talked a lot about Steven Spielberg has had uh, a hell of a career. He's been he's done a lot. Is there a film in his filmography that you feel like more people should see? Ooh, that's a good question. I know I got to. I asked the question <laughs> without preparing myself. Um, I need to bring up his filmography. Yeah, I'm trying to like. Hey, I'll bring I'll bring it up and you can take a look. Well, you know, I mean, I own quite a bit of his films. The film to me that is like, it's, I. You know, it's hard to say if it's underrated because it's still a popular film. That's the thing with Spielberg is most of his films are popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Minority Report. That's one I'll admit that I have not seen. Oh, man. That to me is like, that's shameless worthy. That's like, in my top five of Spielberg, Minority Report's definitely in there. It is hard because, like you said, that um, so many of his films are popular. Like... Um... I've always loved Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can is great because it kind of, it kind of Catch Me If You Can kind of felt like Spielberg doing a Scorsese film. Okay, yeah, totally. Uh, but the one I've always really liked that gets a lot of flack from people is Always. I've never seen it. A uh, romantic comedy starring that starring Richard Dreyfuss okay. about a guy, a pilot who passes away, but is still have still has a connection with his wife. Nice. It's kind of a schmaltzy film, but. It makes me feel good. So I think Color Purple is another one mm-hmm. um, that I think is really good. And then, like I said earlier, I mean, The Post is legitimately like top-notch Spielberg to me. Um, but Minority Report is one of those films that maybe it's because I like Tom Cruise more than the average person. Um, but it's also, you know, it it's this modern film noir that's weird and kind of crazy um, and has just a... Just a wonderful story to it, uh, and a wonderful like color palette to it too. Um, so I've, I love Minority Report and can't say enough about how how much I think everyone should see that for Spielberg. Well, for those of you who are listening, there's two recommendations for you guys. I still think everyone should go see Duel. Um, I want to thank Kyle for being on the show. Like I said, the uh, the the future of the show is that it's going to happen no matter what. How it's going to happen, I'm still f- working on said nick had to take some time off um uh, beginning of the show i uh there should be a message from him kind of explaining it like i said so nick hasn't been fired from the show and he hasn't walked away from it he just needs some he needs some little bit of time off so i'm gonna respect that and i'm gonna keep it going so people like kyle are gonna help me do that because a show like this i can't do on my own so i need people like like him I'm happy uh, to be you. Before we go, is there anything cool that you're working on that you want people to at least be aware of? 
Well, I, we kind of talked about a little bit in vague detail. Um, I'm currently working on a, a documentary about uh, sort of the science of paleontology and how people dig up fossils. Um, so that's sort of been in production now. If you want to find me on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, you can follow the story. I post some stuff on Instagram too. I think uh, my my Instagram handle is the carp spelled with a K instead of a C fourteen. Yep, um, that's that. I hate that I know your Instagram <laughs> handle off the top of my head. So I'm working on that. Uh, a month ago, I had a music video for a band called Devil's Teeth that came out that I co-directed. Um, and then there's a short film called Corvus that I produced uh, that'll hopefully be screening at a bunch of film festivals coming up. So, yeah. Cool. And then, as always, you can find me at Michael underscore Vires on Instagram. I'm hoping to get the show with its own Instagram page. I feel like that could be beneficial. I just haven't gotten off my butt yet to do it. Facebook, the show you can find on uh, on on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and uh, apparently it's popping up in other on other podcast services as well. And um, this episode should be released this coming Friday, which is the 25th, I believe. No, today's the 4th. Oh, wait. (laughs) What? Where? What? When do I think this is? Hold on. This episode will be released this coming Friday on the 7th. Why did I think it was the 25th? That was weird. I guess um, you don't need to tell people that because they'll be <coughs> listening on the 7th. That's true. But the reason I want to mention <laughs> it is because on the 8th, so technically that'd be tomorrow when you're listening to this, I will be moderating a panel for the Milwaukee Short Film Festival. Uh, it will be happening at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll be talking to some local filmmakers about being a filmmaker in Milwaukee and then transcending past that. So come out and see that. and. Come support local film. That sounds well worth everyone's time. Yeah, I agree. Cool.